Welcome back, everyone, to Finance Podcast Week and our October Roundtable hosted by Eric Schlein of the Intelligent Investing Podcast and the Eric Schlein Show with Andy Wong, Managing Partner at Runnymede Capital Management, co-founder of the Asian American Podcast Association and host of the Inspired Money Podcast, Andrew Sather of of the Investing for Beginners Podcast, and Evan Blecker of NetNet Hunter and Broken Leg Investing as they discuss finance myths and horror stories and what's been going on in the world of investing. And if we have time at the end, answer your questions. So for those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week has live stream sessions like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive recorded episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free. So download the Podbean app and follow the Finance Podcast Week channel to receive notifications in real time when we go live and to replay all of the live streams from our events. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can also start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. And now we'll hand it off to our host of this live stream, Eric Schlein of the Intelligent Investing Podcast and the Eric Schlein Podcast. Hello and welcome. Morning, everyone. How are you guys doing? Hey, pretty good. Good. So, um, as Norma uh, shared in the uh, the kind introduction, like always, uh, for October and for our Halloween theme of having things be a little bit spooky, I thought it would be fun to go into some finance myths, some horror stories. Um, um, you know, weird things we've seen in the markets over the years, maybe some weird things or some scary things that we're seeing now. And, you know, to be clear, it's not, you know, it, it tends to, at least in my view, it tends to not be a, um, a good point of view to take on, to be afraid of everything. I think a lot of money uh, can be made in the, in in the face of fear and uncertainty. That being said, there is a lot of uh, weird and uh, scary things that do go on in financial markets. And I think to be aware of them uh, can make you a better investor if, if you know what to look for. So, um, yeah, uh, you know, Evan, I'd, I'd like to start with you and, uh, and, and welcome you here. You know, um, you know, sh- I'm sure you've seen probably a few weird things dealing with uh, net nets over the years. <laughs> Just a well, few, funny you should bring that up. <laughs> it tends to be the land of the weird stuff. Uh, there's always something interesting or a little bit shady going on with these tiny, uh, tiny micro caps and nano cap companies. More so, yeah. than nano caps. Uh, no, than Evan, Evan, just for those that you know who don't know you or, or who you are, can you explain a little bit about what what net net, net what net net investing is? Kind of how you got into it and some of the weird things that you see in that space. 
<laughs> sure. So my name's Evan Blaker, and uh, I'm a cigar butt investor. And if you know anything about early Warren Buffett, you know that uh, his strategy was a little bit different than it is now. He's mostly focused on buying great companies now. But in his early days, in the 1950s and 60s, he was buying these things called cigar butts. And the idea was that uh, these were terrible, tiny, terrible companies, but they were so cheap. Uh, based on liquidation value that, you know, if you buy them on a group basis, you'd have to make money. So he he kind of, um, he likened the investment strategy to picking up cigar butts on the, uh, on the sidewalk. Yeah, they're kind of gross, and but, uh, you know, maybe you find one that was lit and it was just a free puff for you. So <laughs> that's kind of what I do. I focus on the nano caps. And uh, I got into it basically, um, you know, fumbling my way as an early investor, uh, trying to find a strategy that uh, really was easy to um, employ, uh, had kind of statistical backing in terms of academic studies, and it was also used in um, in uh, practice by gifted professionals. And um, I, I almost gave up uh, investing at one point because it was just too difficult for me at the time. Uh, and then by chance I was online and I happened upon somebody's blog. I think it was Jay June at old school value. Um, he's not, he's not running that site anymore, but, uh, I read something about net nets and previously I had just been under the impression that these, these companies were no longer available. Net nets being, you know, the quintessential cigar, butt. but he was, um, he was investing in them. So I thought, well, you know, I remember something about Graham, you know, Graham wrote something about net nets. And so I went back and I read everything that Graham wrote about net nets. And then I started reading the studies and then, you know, I just kind of went down that rabbit hole and, um, it proved to be quite successful for, uh, you know, for the last decade for me. So that's kind of how I got into it. Um, in terms of horror stories, you know, when you're buying these tiny nano cap companies, you know, these are firms that, um, you know, it's not, it's not uncommon to see, uh, their, their sales or revenue figures drop by 50%, uh, because a company doesn't trade below a conservative assessment of liquidation value, unless there's some major issues that the company is facing. Um, and so it's not, it's not uncommon to see these firms drop by, you know, 50% or, um, and see their stock price decline by 90, 95%. That's kind of par for the course. Uh, but the key really is, you know, it comes back to, um, picking, uh, you know, picking your opportunities well. And, you know, I've had the misfortune of diving <laughs> into a couple of really shady companies in my time and, I think probably the worst that yeah I want I want to hear the worst craziest because you remember Evan while we're doing this live right now this is being recorded and at a later sure. date a bunch of finance nerds are going to be sitting around a campfire listening to this at like two in the morning as opposed to listening to scary <laughs> stories so we want to make this good for everyone. <laughs> well, well, I'll try and keep the li- <laughs> as long as I know it's being recorded. I'll keep the libel down. So, um, yeah, I mean, I. Uh, you know, I was on our, our uh, community forums and people were talking about this company and um, there was quite a buzz about it. 
And so I started, I started uh, reading the forums. It was a little tiny shipping company called KDM Shipping. And it was cheap, 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 cheap. Uh, and, you know, they were, they were still in business. They had tons of ships um, running up and down, uh, up and down these, these rivers because it was a river shipping company. And if you looked at the balance sheet, the balance sheet was pretty immaculate. They had tons of cash on the books and you could actually buy the shares for well under net cash. And I happened upon this late. I'm not really sure why, but I happened upon the company after most of the people in my community um, discovered it and had already bought shares. And I managed to get in at a fantastic price. Um, now I'm not, I'm not really sure what the currency is called, uh, out there in the Ukraine, but, uh, we'll say I got in for the equivalent of about a buck and the net cash was something like $3. The the Ukrainian, I, I'm going to mispronounce this, but, uh, it's Hervinia, H-R-Y. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not even going to try. Yeah. <laughs> but anyways, um, yeah, I mean, I, I really nailed it, uh, getting it at such a cheap price. And it looked like shipping was going to pick back up. And I really hit a home run. And then a couple months later, you know, the stock was up 50, 50% or so. And I thought it was doing good. And then we got notification from the Ukrainian regulators that allegedly management wasn't returning their calls and the offices had been vacated and uh, there was no no um, there's no sign of the company's cash. <laughs> so so they froze the stock and uh, this outstanding bargain that I'd picked up in the Ukraine. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess they're living at large somewhere in maybe northern Africa or on Crete or something like that. But um yeah, that, that stock is now frozen in my account, and it's a gentle reminder never to buy anything in the Ukraine, especially cigar butts. And, and do you know what? Do you know what happened to them? Like, what happened to the cash? Or I have no idea. You know, um, they still have a website every, up. Yeah, they still have a website, and every so often we talk about you know maybe we can bring a lawyer in and see what's happening and. But uh, I don't know. It was it was quite a while ago now, so I only had a small um, investment, you know, uh, relative to the portfolio these days. So it wouldn't really be worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, just one of those things. Uh, it just kind of fell apart. Just disappeared. <laughs> just disappeared uh, like vapor in the mist. Oh, it's so interesting. Evan, were you ever involved? I don't know if this was before you were into this, but did you ever um, look at Lazar Kaplan when that was trading? No, I didn't. Yeah. Are I any of you guys are any of you guys familiar with the Lazar Kaplan story? No, I'm not. It was. Um, it's still around. It's a. It's a very famous diamond company, and it was one of these back in like. When I started investing in net nets in maybe like oh six or something like that, <laughs> and it was 
you know, famous diamond company, and it would always trade at a, at a large discount to the inventory of the diamonds. So the liquidation value was always a lot higher. And it wasn't really well run. You know, the margins were pretty low. Um, you know, it was run by the, uh, the fa- like this family. It was family controlled. So it wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna be much change, but it was one of the, it was one of these like you know perennial net nets just always seemed to come up on the net net screen, and then one day there was this announcement that um like the di- like a lot of their diamonds just went missing, um <laughs> and they had this like insurance there was like this big like fight with the insurance company to like recoup their diamonds and um, the stock was halted. And to this day, like there's been no update with that, and this was like '06. Interesting. So, like, if you own shares back then, like you have them frozen in your account for for this this long time. I'm curious how does like Wall Street kind of predict that in the sense that they had it priced so low. Because, like, just looking at the numbers, if it's trading at a discount to inventory, I mean, people are still going to buy diamonds, right? So, the only yeah. reason why it would it would be so cheap, you would think, is if somehow everybody knew that these diamonds were not real or would be stolen. Or well, they were they were real. I, I mean, I think I think in that case, um, it was just a poorly managed business. So, like, you know, here was a company with like you know low single digit ROE. Low, you know, low profit margins. Um, so, sure, it's fine if you know. It, I think it should it should not have been valued more than the diamonds because it's not like they were going to liquidate tomorrow. And mm. the um, you know, just because the assets were worth more than the stock price, well, if you're if you're buying assets that only are you know have a return on equity of like five percent. Then yeah, the company should not be worth book value. You know, it, it should be worth less than book. Um, so I think that's the reason for the discount. It was just to to, to make up for the fact that the returns on equity were so low. Yeah, yeah, that yeah makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it looks a lot like like, like insurance companies, right? Where like you have these like life insurance companies that just like have traded forever at like at like below one times price to book, simply because their ROE is like six percent, five percent. Consistently, and, and you know all their portfolios and like you know government bonds and munis. So like a company like that shouldn't trade you know above book value either. Yeah, that's probably right. There's an interesting dichotomy there between you know how you value a company as a shareholder, like a minority shareholder, and then uh-huh. you know what a company's actual liquidation value is worth to a private owner. Those can yep. be there can be a gap there, and it can be justified definitely because you know these companies management can turn around and liquidate them and uh you know maybe you get 100 but uh if that's never going to happen maybe the company to a shareholder you know you have to price in that risk of nothing happening um you know maybe it's only worth 70 or 60 so well that's why i love you know in um tobias carlisle's book um he showed a statistic of how um unprofitable net nets do better than profitable net nets and, yeah. and net nets without a dividend do better than net nets that have a dividend, simply right. right because if you invest in the insurance company that's you know a net net and it's been a net net forever and it's been five percent ROE for twenty years and pays out a three percent dividend, 
like that's probably not going to change, right? So it's right. not even a cigar puff. It's just like a really weak cigar <laughs> that just stays weak. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even get a real puff out of it. But then like, but if you have a company that's not making money. All they have to do is show a quarter of making money, and then you get that nice bounce and get out. So, like that, Absolutely. I think the reason the net net strategy works as a basket is like those few that either end up turning a profit or there is some catalyst. You know that makes up for all the other ones that either go nowhere or you lose a little bit, or or you know on the occasion one disappears. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, totally, totally agree with that. Yeah, a lot of it with the negative earnings is it's the change in sentiment. You know, going from this company is a bankruptcy candidate, or at least you know that's what the market sees the company as. To oh wow, maybe they can earn a profit. You know, maybe we should be veiling uh, it based on a multiple of earnings instead. Yeah. So I guess for people listening, you know, some some of the takeaways so far are you know if you're investing in foreign countries, you have to be especially careful um, not to trust the assets the way that you would um, in the United States, especially with China. Um, and yeah. you know, Evan, I would imagine you've seen plenty of fraud with net nets in China. Was it you that told me that if you add Chinese net nets to the basket, it actually reduces the returns? Yeah, this is just some back tests that I was running um, on. I think it was portfolio one, two, three. But uh, I I took away Chinese net nets out out of the the group that I was running, and the returns you know jumped up. You can say that's data mining, but uh, uh, if you follow Muddy Waters research, they've been. Um, they're short lister, or sorry, short sellers, and they've been focusing on China for quite some time. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's not the place for foreigners to invest. So, yeah, definitely, if you're going international, you kind of have to be aware of the culture and, you know, the history of fraud um, in in the markets and just that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think one place especially to look is if you have an if you have a company that's a net net. And it's in China, and it seems way too good to be true. Like it's extremely profitable. You know, the margins are significantly better than all their competitors, and it's trading below net cash. Those usually stink. Yeah, that's a big red flag right there. Yeah, and sometimes you even see those companies selling stock below net cash, and it's like, what is going on? Um, here's yeah. a horror story I could I'll I'll, I'll share. Um, Speaking of Money Waters, there was a company Money Waters covered, uh, which they nailed correctly, called China Media Express Holdings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the ticker was CCME, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and this was a really interesting business. Um, it they sold like bus advertising, so you know they had these like billboards on buses, and they would sell it uh, to companies. With the idea, and, you know, they would and they would make you know revenue from that. Well, they were doubling like every year. Like their their growth was insane. The their margins and ROE were like more than double, like every other competitor. And the thing was trading below the cash in its bank account. And there was a big time investor um, that was that was also invested in um, in the company. So it seemed like, you know, and I invested in this in maybe 06, 07. And uh, what had me uh, sell 
was there was a Seeking Alpha article. I think it was on Seeking Alpha. And someone had gone to um, gone to China to go to their headquarters. And it was like a bunch of people like playing ping pong and, and just like hanging out. Like no one was doing anything. <laughs> and and then shortly after, like their auditor resigned. They had they had a big time that was the other thing. They had they had like a major auditor. It was like a well known auditor and the, the auditor resigned. Um and so luckily I sold. I didn't end up really losing any money. I might have actually made money. I don't I don't remember, but it wasn't significant either way. And uh, that was in one of those other stocks where Muddy Muddy Waters had a research report out. Um, there started some being some investigation, and then overnight the stock was halted. Um, turned out the entire thing was a fraud. Um, the the stock went down ninety nine percent. You know when when it opened back up for trading, uh, the company pretty much disappeared. And it turned out that the cash in the bank account was fake. Like they faked their cash. <laughs> oh, and, and you know if this was the United States, like you wouldn't be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So you'd be in prison. Well, you, you you could still go to prison in China for that, but it, you wouldn't even be able to get away with with doing that. Like like you know, even if you were OTC, I don't think you could you could get away doing that in the United States. Well, even with our regulators, we yeah. still have a lot of fraud here too. <laughs> that that is true. <laughs> Have you have you seen yeah, any interesting true. things in uh, is is that Andy? Yeah, that's Andy. Hey, how are you, Andy? I'm doing well, thanks, Eric. So, have you seen some uh, some uh, funky stuff in uh, in your career? I've seen plenty of funky stuff. Um, Enron. Yeah. One. <laughs> it was uh, it was a few years ago that I was going through my old company files and found an Enron annual report, and I was like, huh. Should I hold on to this? And I think I ended up selling it on eBay for twenty bucks. Oh, cool! I bought I bought an Enron uh, code of ethics on eBay years back. Nice. nice. <laughs> yeah. I hope you got that framed. Right. Put it, put it above your desk on your wall. <laughs> Andy, for those that you know, I know you you haven't been on on the live podcast with us before. Um, can you share a little bit what your what your firm does and, and what you specialize in? Sure, sure. Uh, I'm a managing managing partner at Runnymede Capital Management. It's a family owned and operated fee only financial advisory firm. So we work with families, we work with business owners, we work with uh, companies to manage investment portfolios of stocks and bonds. Typically, we also help business owners with their 401k plans. So we will advise on all the different service providers, setting up a retirement plan for a business, and assisting in uh, selecting and monitoring the investment lineup. So that's what we do. I'm also host of the Inspired Money podcast. And uh, what do we do there? We, I interview guests with positive money stories. So from making it to giving it away, we try to figure out how we can do better with our money and make the world a better place. So that's always fun. It, much different subject matter than what we're talking about. I, I was going to say, I love how you go from positive money stories to horror shows. Right, exactly. <laughs> well, it's, it's Halloween after all. That, that, that is true. <laughs> so what are, what are some other interesting, funky things that you've seen in your career other than Enron? <laughs> well, ghoulish stories, I think that, um, you know, in, in the work that I do, Mm-hmm. I'm not involved in net net, but 
we do a lot of valuation and we do our research. So that's one of the takeaways from today's converse, conversation so far. Yes. It pays to do your homework, even if you have to jump on a plane and go look at a little company in China to see if people are playing ping pong or if there's a real business there. Uh, I think even in recognizable company names, you mm -hmm. know, even if you own a GE or you own an IBM, you still need to do your research. So I've seen crazy things where, uh, you know, a trust account that has very concentrated positions, like not that many holdings, maybe four mm -hmm. or five. And because that trust account owned those stocks for a really long time, they had very low cost basis. And because of that, nobody wants to pay taxes. And normally, if you have a company like GE, or even if you have um, you know, an oil company, so if you owned uh, Shell or you owned Exxon, having very few holdings, like that's, that's risky because we've seen like AIG nearly go bankrupt. We, we saw GE, the stock, come down significantly. And when you feel kind of handcuffed by taking capital gains, you know, the account can get cut in half, depending on what's going on. Certainly, over the last two years, like when oil prices were coming down dramatically because of the, because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Five stocks is an oil stock. It's, there's really nowhere to hide. So that can be kind of scary. Uh, one more thing. I guess one real-world lesson also. I don't know if people tuning in are near retirement or not. Probably not. But when you retire, when you turn 72, you have to take your required minimum distribution out of your 401k, your IRA, all your tax-deferred investments because Uncle Sam says, now it's time for you to start taking your money out, and they want to tax you on that. So when you turn 72, you have to take a minimum required distribution annually, you know, before the end of each year. And if you don't do that, then the penalty is steep. They will take 50% of the amount that you should have taken out. So in, in my view, that's really scary. Yeah. <laughs> this is money that you've been <laughs> saving and working for, you know, your entire career. And then when you're retired, you don't want to have to give half of whatever you were supposed to take out that year to the government. Um, I do have one client that that happened to, or it, she didn't have to pay the penalty, but she failed to take out her required minimum distribution. And, it, you know, she thought her accountant did it. The accountant thought I did it. Uh, the piece of advice is that the IRS is actually pretty understanding. If there's a one-off year where you, you fail to do it, you can just write a letter saying, explaining that you inadvertently failed to take it out. You have since taken it out, and uh, you, know, you, you send a letter. And most often, if it's a one-time thing, they say, OK, that's fine. But huh. beware, since the penalty is steep. Interesting. Do you think that's like, um, do you see that a lot where people might try the DIY retirement in the sense of like, 
if they're getting really close to retirement age and they're kind of trying to DIY and they're not aware of like require minimum distribution or some other tax considerations and that's where they should go for a financial advisor. Yeah, I think that that, uh, the answer is yes, but of course I, I'm biased, (laughs) but I think that whenever you're having like kind of a major life change and retirement being one of them, sometimes it's planning for a wedding. Sometimes it's, um, changing jobs, uh, you know, it, it, it's a good time whenever you're having those big changes in your life, which don't happen that frequently, uh, to, to seek advice and just get a second opinion. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, I know just on the personal finance side, trying to look at various, because obviously, you know, tax taxes change every year and the 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 amount that you can maybe take in or or put in can change every year and just even going on google and trying to diy it from that sense you can get conflicting information even from the top personal finance websites on google depending on when you're looking and what you're looking for absolutely yeah our our friends who are attorneys or accountants or actuaries i think have guaranteed job security <laughs> as long as <laughs> as long as we don't have like a flat tax in the united states right you know the tax code is always evolving and changing and you need all of these tax experts and it's not even just the tax code but even like what does it mean to be a, an accredited investor or a qualified investor that changes all the time like you know it's, it's yeah. Right. Does it all, include all, your house? Does it not include your house? Right. And what's the dollar amount? Yeah. Yeah. So I think, I, yeah, as you said, and I would even add anyone in compliance has job security too. That's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> compliance. <laughs> <laughs> we all love those people. <laughs> no offense to anybody out there, right? Well, I think regulations are always well intended. Um, it, it, it's, it's always a headache for those who are actually following the law. <laughs> I, I know, I know. <laughs> for the criminals, you know, the, the criminals just do what they do. And uh, the regulations try to, try to catch up most of the yeah. time. Yeah, I love, I love my like 40 page like anti money laundering document that I had to get made. And it's like, clearly, this is going to prevent money laundering to get that to people. They're not going to read it, but okay. <laughs> um, Andrew, um, let's go to you. Uh, how have you been? I've been good. It's like getting really chilly now. So I'm over here in my like sweater vest inside my house. <laughs> you know, I dropped like, 30 degrees in like two days. Yeah. Also over here in Philly too. It was uh, 48 degrees this morning. Nice. Yeah. So you had any, uh, interesting horror stories from the finance world that you could share today? <laughs> yeah. I had one that was particularly painful and I'll probably remember it for a long time, but so there was this company called Noel brands and you know, they're not, a small company by any stretch compared to the net nets, but 
They're also not like an IBM or a Google. And it was a company that I didn't realize how dangerous of an acquisition they made. So just to give you some context, this was back in 2016, 2017. You know, just to try to put some numbers on it, they were bringing in, let's say, 500 million or 800 million, that kind of amount in profits. And then they went out and spent $8 billion on an acquisition. And the following year had to write, up, write off pretty much the whole thing. So it was basically as if, you know, you're taking your 800 million, let's say, all right, let's take 10 years of our profits and let's buy some company. And then it turned out that, oops, that $8 billion was a complete mistake. And so they, they borrowed most of the money to do that. And it was a very painful lesson to me to very early in my investing career to be like, all right, if you see a lot of goodwill on the balance sheet, make sure you figure out why that's there. You know, companies that will acquire other companies, and if that's their growth strategy, they will accumulate a lot of goodwill over time. But if a company tries to do it and they're basically taking this huge bite and, and way overextending themselves, it's not a guarantee that that's a big waste of money, but it can be. And so, Predictably, you know, they announced the impairment. I saw my stock drop 30%, 40%, which to me, that's, that's a lot because I try to, try to minimize those drawdowns. I don't have too much of a, you know, I'm not going in the deep value, so I'm not getting huge gains. I'm not getting huge losses. And even past the impairment, even though, you know, their cash flows have been improving since that time, their stock has been flat. And that was, you know, four or five years ago. So it was definitely another case of, you know, when you're doing your homework, make sure you're also looking at any, anything that might stick out to say, wow, this is a lot of money compared to, to where they usually play. That would have been a good way to prevent that. And, you know, I'm not going to make that same mistake twice. Yeah. I think most acquisitions fail, don't they? I read something about a really high percentage. I I read it. I don't remember where I read this, but it was something like 90% of acquisitions uh, were value destructive. Yeah. Yeah, that's crazy. Well, if you think about it, though, right, the incentives for acquisitions, right, often the incentives are aligned, right? Charlie Munger always says, show me the incentives, I'll show you the outcome, right? And the incentives for acquisitions often are not based on any value metric, right? So... It's often about getting the deal done. Empire building. Empire building and how much you can grow earnings, but it's not at what cost you're getting your earnings at, right? So if if you if you make an acquisition where you know you you've added a business unit to double revenue, of course your revenues and your your earnings go up, but like at at what at what return on that capital are you making to increase those earnings? And If a CEO is literally getting paid based off earnings per share, he or she has every incentive to overpay for a company, you know, based off an increase in their own salary or a bonus. So I don't think it's done with malicious intent. I don't think they're like I don't think most executives are like, well, I'm going to screw shareholders at the you know at, at the expense of you know, and, and I'm going to get a nice little profit. But I think it just becomes sort of a subconscious thing where well, you just, you know, if you have the wrong incentives. 
it's very easy for you to start to justify why this is a good deal. And, and look, as you guys all probably know, you get a team of bankers or consultants, you can plug in whatever numbers you want to make it look good. And so, and so a lot of people, and a lot, what a lot of executives will do in the C-suite is they'll say, you know, they'll, they'll come up with all these rosy projections, plug in some numbers, and those numbers will be used to justify a bad acquisition, but on paper, it'll look really good. Yeah. So instead of the numbers sort of being a, a check for you, they almost become, they become like a rationalization to do it, to, to make a bad deal. Yeah, incentives are very powerful. It's, it's kind of scary when you think about who's involved in these deals and all the incentives at play. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not it's not like you know all these ceos are just grossly incompetent um i mean there are a few but you know no, you, you, most too. of these guys don't get to where they are because they're stupid right right well, so, so, I mean, obviously the shareholders want to see earnings growth too oh of course, yeah. sure sure so you can justify it in that sense it's like well i'm getting a big bonus as a ceo shareholders in theory should get they should like it as well so yeah i mean like you said it's not always malicious and then the the bankers of course they'll they'll push it through don't ask your barber if you need a haircut yeah they'll, they'll do anything everything in their power to to make it look good and and you know and, and there's you can make the case for acquisitions that have been bargains um microsoft buying linkedin google buying youtube so right, it's it's not it's not a black and white thing for sure, but definitely something to maybe analyze when you're looking at particularly really some, big acquisitions. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. In your experience, now um, now sometimes yeah. though, sometimes you know things could be done maliciously as well. You know, as I, I would imagine, you know, Evan with that shipping company, <laughs> that was that wasn't uh, <laughs> due to bad incentives. I have an amazing horror story. Were any of you ever familiar with the uh, the company IBSG International? No. Mm-mm. Evan, I am I am disappointed in you. This is this was another <laughs> another net net back in the, uh, the dro- early two thousands. I'm dropping the ball here. Oh man! But you didn't start. You, you didn't start. When did you start net net investing? About 2010, I tiptoed in with um, two stocks. Major mistake. I should have had uh, a lot more than that in my portfolio, but by luck, it worked out. All right, Sonny. Well, before your time, you know, <laughs> um, when I was a young lad doing net net investing, um, there, so it was like oh, again, like oh five, oh six, something like that, oh seven. There was this company called IBSG International. And they had, like, it was basically like consulting and software solutions. They had some big, um, quite a few really big um, um, customers. Like, they had, like, you know, the the South African government, Coca-Cola. Like, if you went on their website, they had all their customers listed. And it was, like, you know, pretty, a lot of name name brand companies and South African governments of, Name brand government, I guess you could say, right? So right. I invested in them. They were net net, and this company was trading at a, a pretty significant discount to their accounts receivables. And every quarter, their accounts receivables would go up, and their uh, cash flows would 
go down. And and, and they the big question was when are you going to convert these receivables to cash? And most of the receivables <coughs> were from oh, a lot a lot of it was from the South African government that they weren't paying on time or whatever it was. And there was the the CEO. His name was uh, Doctor uh, Michael Rivers, and he would be on these conference calls and talk about how things were just going slow, but they were collector receivables. So he would do conference calls with the investors every quarter, and was very open, very transparent, and um, seemed like a no-brainer. And. Uh, I just started getting suspicious about this, you know, because after a while, it's like, what's going on? So I called, I called Coca-Cola and I said, um, I, you know, I, I, no, you know, it wasn't Coca-Cola that I called. It was, um, it was one, it was one, it was one of their companies that I, that I had called or whatever. And, uh, I'm actually, okay, I'm getting two companies confused. The China Media Express was how I, was where I called Coca-Cola. And it turned out, that's when I sold China Media Express. That's when Coke got back to me saying they never heard of the company. So that was, that was China Media Express from before. With IBSG, um, it was simply that, um, I had reached out to one of their, like, software solution providers or something, and they had never heard of IBSG, right? So... At that point, I sold the stock instantly. I made 50% return on it, by the way, completely by accident. Like, not, not a lesson learned there. Like, <laughs> but um, it's the only fraud I've ever made money on. And the long story short, shortly after I sold, I wrote a blog post about it, which um, is not up anymore. But I wrote a blog post saying, you know, I called one of their uh, customers or so-called customers. The customer had never heard of IBSG. That obviously to me was the biggest red flag in the book because this is a tiny company to begin with. So I, uh, and then shortly after, a um, few months after, I get an email from, I'm not going to say her name because she asked for confidentiality in 08. So I will, I will not say it. I will not say her position in the company, but she, she was pretty, Intimate with the executives. Let's just put it that way. She 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 was pretty high up in the C suite, and uh, the email is from December twenty second, oh eight, and it says, "Dear Eric, in two thousand seven, you put out a blog post on IBSG International. At that time, I was working as the blank um, with the CEO, Dr. Michael Rivers. Did you ever post anything after the initial notes? A follow up? I couldn't find it. If you had did, I imagine that Rivers probably would have sued you." because he sued everyone who said anything negative about him. But I would be interested in reading it. Yeah. He's in jail now, so I don't have to worry about this. Uh, but, <laughs> but then it goes, uh, I, I left the company last month after working there for only three weeks. I left because they all of a sudden stopped paying all of their employees. After three weeks, I left. And knowing that they hadn't paid the employees in South Africa or India in three months makes my stomach sick. You have no idea about the corruption. So I'm writing to you to see if you have I found any more information, and and uh, I share with her that you know I never posted any uh, follow up, and asked her if she ever re reached out to the SEC or law enforcement, and she goes I actually did thanks I was just curious to see the outside world view on this company, uh, since then they have not had any quarterly conference calls anyhow. 
they direct the quote operator to not take calls from specific people of numbers anyway, and then portray the call to be quote an open call. Thank you anyway. And then she goes, I can help in any way. I'm currently busy opening a restaurant, so I'm working nonstop. Uh, blah, 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 blah. Uh, let's see. She goes, uh, in my opinion, uh, Dr. Rivers is a scam artist. Also, he isn't even a doctor, as he goes by. <laughs> this is information that, it, that, that, that any good investigator could find out. He has lied about that for years to everyone, even the board of directors. He is a master manipulator. All the way through the end, I have gone on probably 15 trips around the world with him. He spends a ton of money. What I mean is $10,000 per ticket just to London and another $10,000 to South Africa, only flying first class and only staying in five-star hotels. When he took a trip, he took his entire family. So it was not unusual that he could spend $100,000 in just one trip to London. It's my opinion that he booked revenue but did not collect because the deals were not even complete. He lived in a multi-million dollar property yet made $200,000 a year and drove the $100,000 Jaguar XKR convertible. It just didn't add up. You won't find Rivers in the States anymore, though. He has scammed all and has taken off. Technically, he bought round-trip tickets, so they can't report that he fled the country. But I know people that go to school with his kids, and they are gone. His kids literally have disappeared, and they're not coming back. I stopped being able to sleep at night because all day I would answer calls for him and lie to people about him being in the hospital and hanging up on bill collectors. Also, employees would call saying they haven't been paid. I have been working with the SEC now since November, but they say they do not have enough, quote, evidence. Um, and then she continues. Her last email to me was in January of 09 and says, I know the country that he's in, but I would rather not say. There, is actually, there actually was a company and actually a software company. Every time we were close to making good deals in the United States, he sabotaged them. The trips were business. He was trying to sell the system. The problem is that he jumped the gun. He would issue press releases saying we were going to get all this money, but in actuality, it takes months to actually implement the system. I think he inflated the numbers so much that when he ran out of money, it was hard to backtrack, so he started doing shady things. His wife played a huge part in it, too. She was the one to open the mail. She had full access to all the bank accounts, etc. She was also in charge of all the stock issuances. There is someone running the, con the country, uh, the company interim. The board announced Jim Queen, former COO for IBS Development, the company that developed the actual software. He is the most honest person I've ever met. He would love to salvage the rights of the software to the company, but there's just not enough money for him to do so with all the mounting debts. The software is, in fact, a good software. It's awesome, in fact. I don't know where you can go from here, but I think the company is about to fall. The board announced all of this in an 8K. They said it was due to Rivers' health reasons. And in fact, I believe that is what Rivers told them. Um, so that was the last I had heard from her. And, you know, the company did, did, did fall and disappear. Uh, Michael Rivers uh, fled to, turned out he had fled to, I believe, South Africa. Uh, years later, in I think like 2012, 2013, he actually did come back. Uh, to the states to start a new company, which also, believe it or not, ten, was also a fraud. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I think he he, he like waited a certain amount of years so he could get like past the statute of limitations or something like that. Um, 
But anyway, it turned out that um, he created another company. It was an international bank software company called Global Business Genesis. And um, they forged false documents to potential investors, made false bank statements. And then his wife would pretend to be an administrative assistant at the firm. Um, <laughs> and then where it gets real crazy is um, in addition to the forged attorney documents that they made, they also told the state and federal courts and the government's creditors and opposing litigants that uh, Dr. Dr. Michael Rivers had debilitating cancer. By the way, he made that up too. And was receiving treatment in Argentina. Then he actually forged medical documents so he couldn't appear in court because he was dealing with his cancer treatments in, in Argentina. And uh, on August 14th, 2014, um, uh, his wife was sentenced to six years in federal prison, offered to pay victims $1.1 million, um, and I believe he's also in jail. Um, but anyway, that was how it all ended. They got caught the second time. That's oh. hilarious. Why would they – he said um, he was sabotaging deals. Why would he do that? I mean you, you go to right, – you go to some foreign country – you get so excited about this software solution, so you want to pump up the stock and do. I mean, I, I can't get in his head, but I would imagine you do a PR, say we got this awesome client, and blah 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 blah. And then the client sees the PR, it's like we didn't even make a deal yet. What are you talking about? Yeah, sounds like he has a talk show. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, I'm Dr. Michael Rivers. Do you not want to appear in court? Well, just fake that you have cancer and fake your medical document. <laughs> She's dating her pool boy, and <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 wild out there, you know. So how especially with these nano caps? I mean, this yeah, this was oh God. It must it must have been like maybe a fifty sixty million dollar market cap company, if I recall. I, I don't. I mean, this was over ten years ago, but um, or, or you know, this was a while ago. But it, it was it was under a hundred million. Nano cap companies have some real drama going on there, especially if you get into the ones that are kind of in the gray market. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Evan, do you have any other interesting frauds that you've seen over the years in the net debt? Uh, not, not that I've had personal experience with. Um, I mean, there's you know the um, Chinese reverse merger scams that uh that hit the u.s uh this last decade sino forests you know stuff like that but um yeah not not something with any personal experience um i have invested in uh, other major losers unfortunately actually i haven't invested in that many uh major losers but sdr i think it's sdr holdings was one of them they were they were um, an interesting little asset play that just kind of petered out to nothing. Um, not really a horror story, just kind of like a slow death. <laughs> but uh, they were actually, I think they they were producing solar encapsulate. So they were involved in the solar panel kind of industry. And they were one of the biggest uh, companies until... I think the Chinese really got involved in that sector and just kind of drove everybody out of business uh, uh-huh. because they were they were producing stuff so cheaply and um, with some pretty good quality. Anyways, uh, a couple of their plants caught on fire. So when I when I 
picked them up. They were collecting the insurance money. They were selling off uh, different pieces of property, trying to monetize, um, you know, a couple of assets. I bought them for a price of around 20% of net tangible assets. And I figured that, you know, it was, it was a good approximate liquidation value uh, at the time. They had enough cash to last, and their plan was to take the insurance money and open up a factory um, in the kind of plastic wrap uh, space for for food. So mm-hmm. they had some high tech equipment and some high tech wrap, and you know this this cutting edge uh, industry of plastic food wrap. That's what they wanted to get into. Uh, anyways, they set up the factory. Everything was going great, but they were slowly running out of cash. And um, near the end, uh, they still had a year to go. And they were trying to get customers, but you know they ran into a catch-22 where in order to get customers, they had to have this special certification. But in order to have this special certification, they had to have customers or you know, a good number of hours. Um, or a good number of orders uh, with their plastic wrap, so they could, you know, prove its uh, its high tech competency. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, you know, at the end of the day, I get an email, um, a, a press release. Oh, by the way, our subsidiaries insolvent. We're closing the business. So, you know, that was wow. kind of that. Wow. Uh, I, yeah, I got out. It was. Um, it was one of the only losers that I've had in, in my uh, net net career, thankfully. But uh, yeah, I think I had about a 75% loss on that one. And this is buying into a company at like 25% of net tangible assets. So, you know, one thing that I always try and look at now is I try and make sure that the companies that I'm buying aren't burning through their, their capital that quickly. And, um, I'd prefer to have something with an ongoing business. Yeah. What are some, you know, Evan, what are, cause you look at really a lot of cheap stocks and a lot of them could be ripe for fraud. What are the things that you look to avoid when buying net nets? I know you talk about that in your book, which by the way, guys, yeah. if you haven't bought his book, he has a great book that you can get on Amazon. I oh, appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Benjamin Graham's net net stock strategy, uh, in mm-hmm. case you're wondering. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's always tough to spot the frauds unless you're going out and you're doing investigative journalism, but, um, you know, but there are I, things I, that I like you avoid. Take, there are things you avoid. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I try to avoid, um, buying companies that are burning through capital. Like I just said, um, and then mostly it comes down to, you know, avoiding specific countries. Uh, I think we've named a couple in this, this uh, podcast so far. Um, I try to avoid companies that are selling shares because, you know, if your company is really depressed in price and it's selling uh, in the market well below what you can liquidate the company for and you're selling shares, you know, that kind of indicates that either you don't care about shareholder value or your company is really, really hurting. Uh, and there's questions about survivability. So I try to avoid, you know, stuff like that. And then mostly I look for positive indicators. I look, well, is the CEO buying? Is the company buying? Um, are there activists involved that I can kind of, you know, coattail ride? Um, and that's that's pretty much it. 
Yeah, right on. I got one I could add. Um, yeah, please. There's this great book, and Evan actually heard of this book from Jay June and his great blog oh, yeah? that he used to write on too. It's called Financial Shenanigans. And oh, I remember yeah. one of the one of the things he mentioned particularly, kind of going to your story, Eric, is if you see this huge increase in accounts receivable, and you're basically taking one of one of these ratios where you're looking at the days, you know, there's a ratio to look at the days for accounts receivable, and oh, like, like how look quickly they get collected. Yeah, and, and okay. if that's expanding too much, and it tells you either they're being squeezed by their suppliers or something else. Uh, I'm sorry, like squeezed by their customers or something else could be happening with the business. I mean, not to say that, all right, some of these accounts receivable situations getting worse. This must be a fraud, but it is one of those things that kind of makes you raise your eyebrows a little bit to say, let me investigate this further make sure it's, it's for a valid business reason rather than something that says, you know, the business could be going in a way we don't want it to. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a really great point. I think that Peter Lynch wrote that, um, you know, don't quote me, it might not have been Peter Lynch, but I read somewhere that um, if the company's revenue, or sorry, if the company's receivables is expanding more than the revenue, then you should definitely watch out. That's a big red flag. Right. And inventory, I think, Andrew, you, you just mentioned inventory too. I mean, the, the classic retailer, right, that just keeps building up and building up inventory, like that tends to be, you know, a big problem as well. Right. Well, anything else, guys? I mean, we're almost uh, we're almost at the hours, uh, ten fifty-seven. Um, I got a quick one. I can story, I can shoot them. Guys, talk about you know looking at the balance sheets of all these companies. Yeah, it just reminds me of like there are times when you kind of see the reverse too. Like I remember yeah. there was a company China.com back in the day. Okay. And like in 1994, I think this guy just took, I think he basically acquired Xinhua News Agency. It was like part of this print newspaper. It was kind of like their online division, but in the mid 90s, like, what did that mean? Like they had like mm. a little website, barely. But because China.com just had like such a good name, so when the internet boom happened, it was perfect. Like suddenly his stock price like went sky high and suddenly he had this currency with his with his stock and he could actually buy real companies. Because I think previous to that the business didn't have much. And if you look at meme stocks today, kind of similarly, like I think that GameStop is transforming, but the fact that it, it became a meme stock and the stock price got driven up, now the company has all this cash on its balance sheet and it can actually go out and buy businesses. Um, Have they been doing stock, sale, stock, stock sales in the midst of this? Yeah, yeah. I think that they did. I think they did a secondary. So they basically, okay. they basically have a ton of cash on the balance sheet and they haven't announced what they're going to do with it yet. But talk about a second lease on life, eh? Yeah, right. I think that yeah. you know you you really can have a tired retailer that's sort of like going down the tubes, and because it became a meme stock, and I'll give credit to um, Ryan Cohen, who's who's like chairman now, 
uh, former CEO of Chewy, the online uh, pet food. But he has yeah. a vision to transform the company into like e-gaming or some different concept. And if, if he has the cash to do it and he can use the company stock as currency, I think there's potential there. Uh, just, just watching the company, they have been hiring a lot of people from formerly from Chewy and also from Amazon Web Services. So hmm. there's stuff going on there. Like it can, yeah. there's going to be an attempt made to change from this brick and mortar, you know, video game store to something else. And um, given that Ryan Cohen built Chewy.com from which like is a wonderful bit, which is such a, a wonderful big business. Yeah. You know, he's a guy who has a track record in a good way. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know. I'll leave it at that in contrast to your Michael Rivers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's how to do it right and how to not do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he is, he is no Michael Rivers. He is no Michael Rivers. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like a really oh interesting gosh. development. Yeah, and I think that, that is a really interesting. I think the Ooh, newspapers sorry. don't quite get it because um, it's just much much easier to write it off as saying, um, you know, meme stock, internet drove it up, and there's nothing there. I think that there is a transformation right. happening. Time will tell if it will have longevity or not, but um, changes are happening. Yeah. So. I, I really love stories like that where they're starting new businesses or they see giant opportunities. You never know if it's going to pan out or not, but, um, mm -hmm. you know, if you buy cheap enough and then it does pan out, you know, that's awesome. Correct. Yeah. You know, not that you're buying cheap with GameStop. Yeah. <laughs> yes. But if the clients of the new business have never heard of the business, it's probably a red flag. That's true. True. <laughs> Well, I think that's a pretty good place to end it. So I'm going to read our brief intro. I think we've heard both sides of the coin, and it's been such a lovely live stream. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for this live stream, the October Finance Podcast Week Roundtable, hosted by Eric Schlein of the Intelligent Investing Podcast and the Eric Schlein Podcast, with Andy Wong, Managing Partner at Runnymede Capital Management, co-founder of the Asian American Podcast Association and host of the Inspired Money Podcast. Andrew Sather of the Investing for Beginners podcast and Evan Blecker of NetNet Net Hunter and Broken Leg Investing. For those of you who may be joining us for the first time, Finance Podcast Week has live stream sessions like this one with top finance podcasters and experts from around the world. We also have exclusive recorded episodes on the Finance Podcast Week channel for free, so make sure to check those out. If you join late or want to have another listen to these amazing podcasters and experts, you can replay this roundtable on the Finance Podcast Week channel. Finance Podcast Week is brought to you by Podbean. We're a podcast hosting and monetizing platform and home to over 500,000 podcasts. And as you're joining us for this session, you can see we also offer the ability to live stream directly from the app to your audience. For everyone listening, you can start your own live stream for free on Podbean. The content of Finance Podcast Week is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any such information or other material as legal, tax, investment, financial, or other advice. Nothing contained on our site, live streams, and podcasts constitute a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Podbean or any third-party service providers to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments. Thank you so much to everyone for joining us. 
big thanks to our podcasters and Eric and happy October to everybody out there. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween guys. Yeah. Yeah. Same to you. It's been fun.